I think we're going to see a boom in the next three years of more traditionally SaaS and sales focused teams taking advantage of this type of content. What it does is it shortens your sales cycle because people are able to watch a 90 second or three minute ad and not only be introduced to the problem and solution that it's solving, but also hit on some of the you know, frequently asked questions, some of the pain points. And that prospect, before they've even reached out, has already started to place in their mind where, where they think your product or service is going to fit in their world. All right. Welcome to today's VidTal podcast. This is VidTal co-founder Ian Naj. And today we are going to be speaking with Mr. Jacques Spitzer. So you definitely have seen Jacques work. His agency Raindrop has generated over a billion views on YouTube and over 750 million in campaign sales for brands like Dr. Squatch, Manscaped, Loom, Ruggable, William Painter, Works, Omigo, Crossrope, the list goes on and on and on. Jock has, has won uh, two Emmy Awards for his ads at Raindrop and had the top performing YouTube ad of 2020 and as well as an amazing Super Bowl commercial for Dr. Squatch that really blew up their business, blew it wide open, scaled it massively. So Jacques has a ton to share on what makes a good YouTube ad, what makes a good video ad generally, and really an honor to have Jacques on the show. Can't wait to get into it with you. So without further ado, let's chat with Jacques. This podcast is brought to you by VidTau.com. VidTau is our free YouTube ad library and spy tool, research tool. It's V-I-D-T-A-O.com. At VidTau, we have close to a million unlisted YouTube video ads that you can search, find, discover how they're doing on a day-by-day basis. So you can really see what ads your competitors are running, see ads in different markets that you can model to create new winning ads for yourself and a whole lot more. It's all there inside VidTau.com. Plus, we have a premium edition. So the database is free to access, but then we also have a premium edition where you have full unlimited access to the database. And inside there, we also provide training. So we also run an agency called Inceptly. That's I-N-C-E-P-T-L-Y, Inceptly.com, where we've managed over $150 million on YouTube. It's a video traffic agency, and we've worked with everyone from brands like Descript.com, Huel, to real scrappy direct response, info products, supplements, health, beauty, e-commerce, you name it, we've done it, and love sharing what we've learned. Every week we drop new training in there, everything from YouTube ad media buying to running e-commerce creatives on YouTube, to hardcore tracking and attribution tutorials to really level up your data science game for advertising and everything in between. Right now, as we speak, we're working on a training regarding YouTube shorts. Um, Hopefully we'll be live by the time you hear this. On and on and on. This is our passion is video advertising and we wanna share it with you inside of VidTal Premium. And actually right now, for a limited time, you can get access to VidTal Premium for a very special price. So if you go to VidTal.com, sign up for free, check out the database, upgrade to premium for this very special price, you'll get access to all of the database and all the trainings. And also wanted to add that at Inceptly, we do free brainstorm calls with clients like you. So 
If you ever want to get help or ask questions about your YouTube ads, your video traffic on other platforms, we're available to chat. Just go to inceptly.com slash call, C-A-L-L, and set up a time to chat. It's free and we'd love to speak with you. Our team's waiting to speak with you. So without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jacques. Jacques Spitzer, oh, so good yeah. to have you. And it was it's good to uh, good to be here. And it was so nice to meet you in person uh, in San Diego not too long ago. I appreciate uh, you inviting me on the show. Yeah, I mean the honor is is all ours. Honestly, I mean your work speaks for itself. Who doesn't know Doctor Squatch? And then really, when you dive in with what you've done at Raindrop Agency, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So in terms of making comedic entertaining ads that actually sell um man i mean we're, we're we're your biggest fans so it's an honor i appreciate it well let's give away <laughs> let's give away all of our secrets today <laughs> all right well you know i didn't want to i didn't want to be too uh yeah make too big of too much too big of an ask but uh yeah i'd love to love to to dig in and ask some questions you know um uh was fortunate to watch a bit of your pre- presentation or your, your whole presentation um in San Diego and and it was super exciting to see everything that you've been sharing. And I, you know, I have more questions uh, on top of what, you know, you know, what I do know about your process. Um, so, but I actually wanted to start off with something just a little bit different and we'll get into your, I want to get into your backstory and how you came into this whole crazy world. Um, but first I, I'd love to, if you just walk us through for Dr. Squatch specifically, can you walk us through, did you have any ads that didn't work? Like what were some things that you, that you tested that you did that maybe you thought would, would work. And then, you know, for whatever reason, they just didn't work. Is there anything you can sure. share on, on that front? Yeah. I love how you started with uh So tell me about the project that you did that didn't work for them. Well, well clearly um, it worked. Clearly it worked. Well, I'm just wondering, there must've no, been some. No, like... no, no, no. I, <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. So to, maybe to walk people, I, cause I think, I think to understand what didn't work and why it didn't work, I think is two important pieces. But I think a lot of brands make um, a similar mistake all the time. Um, and it's something that as an outside partner, we're always bringing this perspective into our clients. And I would say that most clients, most groups get bored advertising to their core audience over and over and over again. And they start to think, well, maybe my growth will come from hitting a new audience in a new way. Um, you know, and so uh, in general, uh, take Dr. Squatch, for instance, it's like, guess their core, core audience. I want you to guess. Um, the core, core audience. Okay. I think you might have, I might have heard this from you. Is it women who buy soap for the men in their life? No. It's it not. Is, uh, it is. No, it is men buying for themselves, primarily 18 to 50. Okay. So that's, that's the core audience for the product and the consumer. Um, and so, you know, that had been working so well for the first couple of years that we went, Hmm, maybe maybe we should try going after a completely different audience, uh, which was a more female-driven audience. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, well, what if we what if we led with uh, a woman, not only speaking to a, a female audience about buying this product for someone you know that they know, but but potentially even for themselves, right? Kind of like that that whole angle of like, 
I stole my boyfriend. So, or, um, you know, I got this from my husband and now I, I can't stop using it. That kind of, um, mindset. And so that, that campaign just fundamentally didn't perform well. Um, when we had a more female based lead and what we found in general is that, um, the only time women tend to work really with the brand is when it's in a, uh, when it's in a, an environment where it makes sense. So in other words, no cheaper, easy, like, okay, we're just going to throw a beautiful woman in the ad and it'll just work is that just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Uh, what does work though, is like when we, we took the, um, soap down to the beach and we had men trying, you know, with a camping shower, we used a rinse kit, like, a a portable shower, like pressurized shower. Mm -hmm. And so we brought the rinse kit down to the beach and we had the men trying the soap, you know, in real time and then having women smell it and responding to it. Mm -hmm. That did really resonate and work. I think because it made sense given the context, but yeah, um, that was probably the only campaign I can think of that just absolutely like within, you know, a couple weeks, if months, they were like, eh, we should probably turn this thing off. It's not performing in the way we wanted. Um, and what I started with was people being sort of bored with, you know, their core audience. What I mean, bored is a, a tough word, but mm -hmm. what I mean by that is I think people underestimate, you know, just how much juice there is to squeeze um, from their core demographic before they start going off on these other demographics they want to go after um, outside their core audience. Um, the same thing happens too with like product selections and SKUs, you know, people will launch products that don't necessarily at the time they seem to make sense, but later on like, oh shoot, like, of course this didn't sell. Our core audience isn't really interested in this product from us. Um, and I've seen that mistake a couple of times too. So whether it's advertising campaigns or new product launches, they kind of all, the trap there is like you fall into, it seems like a good idea. Um, but really it's because you feel like you've done a lot of work towards the core audience and you want to try a new one. And mm -hmm. look, the only way to learn is by trying. Um, and that's the other thing I would add is that, you know, there's no such thing as failure as long as you're learning from it. It's a more expensive learning mistake, but you do learn from it. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. And then on that front, I mean, that's, that's amazing advice. And seriously, as you're saying that I'm kind of taking it to heart for some of the stuff that we're doing. But there must be instances you can think of where you did take that leap and try something like that. And you did open up a new market. I'm just wondering, yeah, it, or can you think of any examples where that was the case? Yeah, it's really, uh, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, what comes to mind is um, usually it's, it's not so much maybe markets as it is channels. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't think that fundamentally, it's it's really difficult to shift your product to a new audience. Uh, I'm not gonna say it doesn't exist. I've seen a couple of brands actually do it recently. Stanley is one. They're like a, a like a I don't know, like almost like a Yeti thermos hydroplast mm -hmm. type of product. Um, you know, they've made this pivot. Um, I mean, Old Spice invested heavily in making that pivot probably 15, 20 years ago when they mm -hmm. went from being like your grandfather's like, you know, uh, face lotion slash um, deodorant to a more 
younger skewed brand. But I would say in, in most cases, um, people find new channels to reach similar audiences mm. rather than necessarily like changing their core demographics. Um, I would say too, obviously, there's some gender like a classic question with brands is like how to approach new genders. So like, mm-hmm. you know, do you, um, you know, do you, if you are a more male heavy brand, do you try to diversify into a female product skew? Do you spin off a completely different brand as more female specific and makes people feel like they're speaking more specifically to them? There's so many questions there, but, um, uh, I, I'm, try, I'm, I'm having a hard time really thinking about a, a campaign where we did where we were like, oh my gosh, like we just discovered that we have this huge gold mine. I will say that um, with new channels does come new audiences. So like Dr. Squatch, who you talked about to start the show, you know, they really made inroads on TikTok where um, it went from people saying, hey, I love your ads. Um, you know, I, I love Dr. Squatch. I love your ads um, to my kids love your ads. They mm-hmm. see them on TikTok. You know, they're 14 year old, 15 year old, 16 year old. And as, as they rolled out into retail, that was a huge part of, you know, success for them because now they have middle schoolers and high schoolers asking their parents and most likely their mom for the, the products themselves. Um, so, you know, brands can certainly grow out their core demo, but it's not like all of a sudden, 16-year-old girls are using their soap, if that makes sense. It's not like yeah, all of a sudden yeah. it's broken and it's like it's just it's broad in the age range that they can skew. Got it. Got it. So side side question on that was did did Dr. Squatch go retail before or after the Super Bowl ad? Um well they've they've always had like a, a presence in more like small boutique mm-hmm. type places, you know. Um so you would be like traveling Idaho and pop into a shop and uh, oh, there's not her squatch. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of like Walmart and whatnot, that was um, that was after the the Super Bowl launch, and I think that was part of their calculated plan to mm-hmm. grow brand awareness leading into the larger retail presence nationwide. Amazing. I mean, just it's must be insane to think about. So, um, you know. You and I have discovered that we have a connection, <laughs> both being UCSD Triton alumni, which is super cool. And how is it? Did you have any idea, okay, back growing up, going to UC San Diego, that you would be a multi Emmy award winning, you know, per, how do you want to describe it? Creator of these amazing, amazing videos, amazing advertisements, um, oh, having man, your yeah. stuff air on the Super Bowl. Like, how did this whole thing happen? Well, yeah, I mean, when I was probably when I was like seven, um, I wrote out, you know, I want to be a professional ad creator, right? Like, uh, that was what I knew I wanted to do. Nah, bro. I, I went to, I went to, I went to UCSD, as you mentioned, and had no idea what I wanted to major in. Um, and actually didn't get into advertising right away. I didn't even know it was a thing, really. I mean, I, I knew people made commercials, but, I didn't know how they were made. I didn't know who made them. I didn't know anything about them. Um, even after college, right? I didn't get my degree and I got my degree in communications, but, um, you know, it wasn't until I was working at NBC writing news and someone was like, Hey, you'd be really good at advertising. And I was like, mm. 
I was like, you mean like writing the pest control commercials? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, cause you know, all, all that's on local news is, is pretty much the pest control commercials and the heating and air commercials and the carpet jingles. Um, which by the way, side note, I still really want to write a famous jingle. It's just like <laughs> on my bucket list. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was not something that was super top of mind. And even when I started raindrop, um, you know, it was just me. I was 25. I want to say when I started it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was young. I didn't know anything really about advertising, but when I was in college, um, you know, I always think about my life would have looked a little bit different if um, TikTok and YouTube were big when I was in college because I graduated in 2008. Mm-hmm. So this is like before peak YouTube um, right. or even the beginning of monetized YouTube, really. And um, I had a show in college I did for fun where it was essentially a prank show. I didn't realize at the time, you know, that that was a thing, but my buddy and I would go down to library walk that main drag mm-hmm. and we would do weird stuff with a hidden camera. So we'd, we'd sign up I mean, we'd have a hidden camera. I got to find these by the way, there's somewhere in the archives, but we'd set up a hidden camera and we would just do weird stuff. So like one of the episodes was seeing what people would do for a Klondike bar since that was Klondike's whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so we were just asking them to do really bizarre stuff and then capturing it. We, did an episode where we wore pink polos and then interviewed men about how they felt about wearing pink polos while wearing pink polos and then like hugging them from each side and pink polos. I mean, just stupid stuff, right? We were in college, but mm-hmm. um I think even at that age, I just enjoyed, I don't know if it was the, the shock and awe factor of it, but I enjoyed the um experience of, doing something, getting people's reactions and then stitching those reactions into something that people would want to watch. Um, and so that was really where I got like my start, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't even in advertising. It was just make, I mean, it's honestly the same type of stuff that like a Mr. Beast would do now, you know, it's like, that's how my brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar. So when I see these creators on YouTube, I'm like, yep, nope. Like, exactly how my brain has always thought about things um i have so many ideas it's just that most of them are too inappropriate to actually do um if i'm honest now that i'm <laughs> see the, the age i am at now it's like you see the the guys that are like the full send guys i'm like that's mm-hmm. exactly the type of stuff i was doing <laughs> in college. yeah that's awesome so do you remember so who was your first client you actually made a video for do you remember that well, my, my very first client was a guy named Ray Wetterlin III. He was a personal trainer mm-hmm. um, based out of San Diego. And, um, you know, he just he just believed in me enough to pay me, I don't know what it was, 15, 20 bucks an hour to, to shoot some videos for him. And he started seeing a lot of success just by, like, he was a classic case of, like, you hear those people now that are like, Oh man, if you put yourself out there and you're putting out content, you know, mm-hmm. three three clips a day, you know, 365 days a year, you're going to grow. Well, mm-hmm. he was doing this back in like 2009, wow. 2010, like no one was doing this. So like he had me producing these one minute videos for him and we were releasing like three to four a week. Wow. And there's a point where he had developed, I want to say like a hundred thousand Twitter followers, which wow. again, at this time, like it's, it's, it's so hard to think this way, but it's like, it was totally foreign other than celebrities. It was totally foreign to follow 
influencers or random people. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like you basically just followed your friends, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I mean, this is at this point we're talking, you know, Facebook had been open to the general public for like a year to a year and a half. It was so new, you know, not just colleges. And so, you know, here he was like dominating early Facebook dot. And so he, um, it was so interesting. He was my first client. He, we, we started figuring out how to, he was a personal trainer. We figured out how to leverage his personality. And so we, we, we went to the local smoothie shop and we got the, you know, RW3 was his like nickname or the RW3 smoothie. And then we mm-hmm. got like a life-size poster and put it up outside the smoothie shop, you know, get your RW3 smoothie. Well, everyone that was going to the gym all of a sudden saw his face there. Um, because of my background in local news, I started pitching him all the local news stations for all the like relevant expert stuff around like, how to keep your holiday weight down, new year, new you, all those type of news segments. So he starts showing up on all these news segments. And um, that's literally where Raindrop started was just, he started seeing success. I started getting referrals and Mm -hmm. that was it. Like he was my first sort of foray into this world of marketing. Wow. So you're doing the content and the distribution from pretty much day one, thanks to your experience at the news channel. That Um, was just it. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, just kind of following the instincts of where to be and um, growing people. And in this case, it's personal brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, when you, when you see your, you know, your, your sort of like best greatest hits collection at this point, right. Um, up to, you know, up to now, it's clear that you have, there's so much direct response happening in, in the ads. I'm just wondering. So, Going from RW3 doing, you know, PR and doing this sort of daily content, how do you make the transition to also then incorporating all these elements of making people take action, encouraging them to take action through the content? Just curious about how that process happened. From oh, from from those early days to where we're at now. Yeah, I mean, how did you like? What, who's your first? Would you say? direct response client in the sense of, you know, you're measuring exactly what results you're getting from the video. Cause clearly like these videos have driven insane numbers, trackable numbers. Um, totally. Yeah. And so like, what, where's the, where, where's that first instance where you go, Oh, wow. I can actually see how this, this piece of content does versus this other piece of content I did. And then, you know, learning from that. Yeah. So, I mean, truly, um, our first, so our first full, because it's like we've, we, we did a lot of different campaigns, but our first true d- direct to consumer client was Dr. Squatch. Mm. Um, cause they were doing just shy of, just around $3 million at the time run mm-hmm. rate, um, per year. And so I remember him asking, I remember Jack asking me like, well, do you guys work with direct consumer brands? I was like, well, you know, not yet, but I think we could do some really great work for you. Um, you know, he, he had been running his brand for five plus years. Um, and I knew it was a challenge, you know, with it being a, a very pricey men's all natural soap in a category that just like didn't really exist at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he took a risk on us and it paid off big time. You know, yeah. I mean, the first campaign saw its first life on Facebook mm-hmm. and then it saw a second life on youtube in front of in terms of the very first campaign mm-hmm. um and then it just kept stacking on top of each other that was man that was 2000 probably 
2017 and then 2018 and 19 were successful but truly the there was a campaign of kind of like our greatest hits if you will in 2020 that did like a quarter billion views um wow. in it, yeah on, on on youtube um scalably of course um right. and so uh it, it was interesting to see the our first three longer form direct consumer clients were the san diego symphony well first it was um it was uh Dr. Squatch, mm. then San Diego Symphony, and then um, William Painter, mm -hmm. uh, which is a sunglass company. And their ad scaled to 70 plus million views in just like a matter of months. Um, and so all of those um, early campaigns told us like, oh, okay, we can do this, um, not just a one-off, but like we're seeing multiple campaigns thriving. Um, and, you know, I think it, it was helpful too that um, you know, Ezra Firestone was putting out um, media buying courses through Smart Marketer, still does. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of our clients were starting to like learn how to buy YouTube ads mm -hmm. appropriately mm -hmm. um, because out of the box, YouTube's not set up to scale media. It's great at capturing sort of like demand um, people, you know, people that are searching certain terms or whatever, but not not great when it when it comes to like delivering top of funnel advertising. Um, and so uh, that was that was a big game changer was when people started realizing just how successful YouTube could be for these brands to grow them by tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and that's been really exciting to, to be a part of the last four or five years. Wow. So you, you would say that YouTube ads specifically have been a major, I guess, uh, platform for for raindrop probably the biggest platform i mean yeah we we think about everything through an omnichannel mm -hmm. uh, approach so like in general we have certain campaigns that have done really really well on meta platforms yeah um it just depends on again where the audiences are if you have a broad especially if you have a broad male demo mm -hmm. i mean anything that's like sunglasses mm -hmm. uh, you know soap uh Anything broad mail, wow, can it do well on YouTube? I mean, we have another client, Shady Rays, um, sunglass company, and the last couple of campaigns we've done for them have just been unbelievably epic uh, in terms of the results and, mm -hmm. and what they've seen. And the same thing with Dossier. Um, Dossier is a um, kind of like a cologne and perfume type of company, um, and they're doing really, really well um, through YouTube. Um, so is Bones Coffee. So again, broad, broad audiences. Um, can do really, really well on YouTube. Um, and I think it, for a lot of brands, they kind of hit a wall when it comes to what they can do on Meta. Um, mm -hmm. And so now they're trying to figure out TikTok, trying to find, figure out YouTube. They're trying to figure out OTT. And um, the brands that are still really winning in this environment aren't trying three new channels at once. They're just adding one more at a time because they've mm -hmm. already figured out the other ones. Yeah, yeah, it makes Makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I'm just curious, you know, you worked with these companies and it's, it's a super interesting mission, the San Diego Symphony, because I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know, but these symphonies, they have like epic sales teams. So it's, yeah. it's, it's crazy. They're super experienced, hardcore direct response marketers selling these, uh, these symphony memberships. So that was, I've never seen that one. I'm super curious. I want to check out what you did because I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's amazing. Um, that, that's one of the more, it's, it's, um, 
one of the more interesting campaigns we've ever done. It it um it actually did really well on Facebook versus YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, that's where their core audience is going to be. But um, check out um if you, if you search old new old you meet meet new you mm-hmm. San Diego Symphony on YouTube, you should be able to find it. Um, Nicole leads it. Um, she heads it up. She's a actor and comedian and um she actually nails it i mean this video is four years old or so but Mm -hmm. that um what we i think what we didn't anticipate was that the video did on facebook about a million views in uh, organically in about three weeks um so it it got shared around the world in this super niche community of high art form and it uses what we call edutainment. So it's like, there's no, you know, I think people get concerned when it comes to humor. They assume that it needs to be in fart jokes or something. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Um, it, it really is. Um, you can do it in a fun, clever, sophisticated way. And I think that YouTube spot, um, or not YouTube, the uh, you know, symphony spot we did is a great example. Mm-hmm. Um, because it just, it, it's classy, but it's fun. And it's just unexpected. and um, I think a lot of brands, you know, the same symphony as well. It's like, to me, yes, growing Dr. Squatch to this point is a huge part of our success story. But I also would say the work we've done with Sango symphony was so interesting because we doubled their ticket sales in the course of about four years Insane. and doubling ticket sales where you have, a, you're, you're dealing with an art form that's a hundred, you know, hundreds of years old. Yeah. An organization that's over 100 years old is like that's actually harder <laughs> i would say mm-hmm. um to do and um we connected with new audiences by broadening the way we approach people um and so that was uh that video is a, is a good example too of the um the risk that they were willing to take i mean I remember when um, Joan Cummings, the VP of marketing there, said, I want a video. I want a long-form video like that one you did for Dr. Squatch. I was like, I don't think you understand. I don't think it's going to work the way you think it will. Mm-hmm. She's like, I want it. And we <laughs> did it. And sure enough, like it really worked. People resonated with it. Yes, it sold tickets. Yes, they hit all-time sales records. But more importantly, people are proud of the marketing. And I think that that's, that, that's a really big thing to achieve um, for any organization. Yeah. And, you know, like, we're super humble because you forgot to mention that it also won an Emmy award. <laughs> so that's that, that, yeah, that as well. That as well. So, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, too. No, Cherry yeah, on top. Was, exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. it was a really cool thing to be a part of. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's so neat. Um, I mean, is there anything, is there any product that you don't think you could raindrop could apply its magic to that raindrop couldn't help? Is there any product that fits that description? You know, um, so let me give you a good example of one that I thought wouldn't work. It totally did. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, you know, because I think um, this got me thinking so much differently about like this one client, I would say completely changed the way I think about marketing. And so I want to tell you the story because I think anyone listening to it would find it really interesting, which is um, we got approached by a group called Techmetric. And... Um, at the time, we had, we had really only done one thing that was SaaS-focused. Um, but, you know, they basically sell a software that helps auto body shops to, um, to organize uh, their auto body shop and mm-hmm. get the invoicing out and everything else. 
And so I was like, oh man, like, so how big is your target audience? And they're like, well, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe 10,000 auto body shops or something mm-hmm. in the US, right? And I'm just thinking like, oh my gosh, like, okay, that's, that's a really small audience. And like, how would we even reach these people? I mean, people that own auto body shops or, you know, manage them, do they, do they spend time on LinkedIn? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe YouTube, maybe Facebook. I'm not really sure. And so, what we did though was we, we kind of told them like, Hey, I don't think we could be successful for you here. Mm. And they came back to us and they're like, well, actually we disagree. We, we think, you know, since our software is roughly 3000 bucks a month, like if we do this campaign with you, we only need to sell like four or five licenses and they'll pay for itself year one, let alone if it mm. compounds over time. And I'm like, okay, that makes me feel a little better, but like, I don't know, like still seems still seems kind of uh, difficult. And so we came up with this whole game plan, which was um, how do we reach the broadest audience possible with something that is forwardable, meaning something that people watch, consume, and then can forward to the decision makers. Because we started, we kind of drew a pyramid and we said, okay, well, these decision makers are at the top, but who's below them? And we started saying, well, you know, mechanics work for all of these groups and and a lot of mechanics are going to be on Facebook and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Well, who knows mechanics? Well, their wives and their friends and people that are into to cars. Mm-hmm. And so we started like putting out the interest groups and we realized like actually we have about a million people, you know, maybe 3 million people that we can target mm-hmm. that we just need them to afford it to the 10,000. We got, huh, this might be more possible than we think to, to, figure out a way to create a little Trojan horse, a little story, mm-hmm. a little Trojan horse that could forward it on. And sure enough, when we made the ad, they turned it on. And within a couple of weeks, if not a month, they, they were like, we want more campaigns. And they came back for even more work. Um, and it's what it's what changed my mind about creating advertising for Raindrop in and of itself. Mm-hmm. We had never done anything for ourselves. And so um, as soon as we did that, I was like, okay, we got to make something for Raindrop. And now we're going to be on our like, third campaign after that um, because our own advertising for ourselves has been so successful following that sort of pyramid which is like sure there's only a couple decision makers but you can reach a lot more people the problem is most people will ignore your ad unless it's entertaining and educational enough to capture attention and be like you got to check this out and so you start from that perspective you would have a swinging chance at reaching those 10,000 people, right? The decision makers, if you can, if I can get a social media manager who sees my ad to port it to their CMO or to their VP of marketing, we'll now have a swinging chance. Mm-hmm. But if I make it so that's only for the VP of marketing, then that that person that gets served the ad is going to ignore it. Um, and that was the, the fundamental shift um, that made me go, okay, well, you can pretty much sell anything. The question is, is how do you position it well? And mm-hmm. what form of entertainment do you need to get people to engage with it? That's yeah, that's that's a game changing insight. That's like because people obsess about okay, you know, targeting on LinkedIn for let's say super specific job titles is so it's so expensive to reach these people, or you got to do crazy cold outreach, et cetera, et cetera. But man, that that whole philosophy, like you said, turns it all on its head. That's I think we're going to see a boom in the next three years of 
um, more traditionally SaaS and sales focused teams taking advantage of this type of content because mm-hmm. what it does is it shortens your sales cycle because people are able to watch a 90 second or three minute ad and not only be introduced to the problem and solution that it's solving, but also hit on some of the, you know, frequently asked questions, some of the pain points and that prospect before they've even reached out. Have, has already started to place in their mind where where they think your product or service is going to fit in their world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we used to get on phone calls with people and they'd be like, so who are you and what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, versus now when they get after they've seen our ad and they get on the phone, they're like, I love the campaign you did for X, Y, and Z. And I love how you talked about this. This is how I think it might work for us. Mm-hmm. And you're like, great. My name is Jacques, right? Like, I mean, I'm talking like that, that's how fundamentally it shifts the conversation. Um, and I think a lot of people feel like their product's too technical for people to understand without a demo. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, is it? Or is it that you haven't worked hard enough to figure out how to make it simple so that you can get the call? Um, so anyway, I'm just pontificating now at this point. No, that's amazing. I do think, I do think we're going to just see a, a, a rise of this educational style content for some higher ticket or SaaS and enterprise level businesses. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Um, and how do you, I know, you, so you mentioned that 30 to 50 hours, you, you're, you and your team invest 30 to 50 hours before you can write the first word. Right. So in terms of, notes. yeah, no, I mean, that, that was that really struck me because, yeah. and then I'm thinking here, you know, because what you're talking about, you're talking about taking something that's, Super specific, has a super specific target audience, um, a lot of techni- technical details involved, and then you're making it really easy to understand. Um, that's not that's not that's not a simple process. Like what how do you go about for a complicated SaaS product or for the you know for the auto body uh, shop, for instance, how do you go about digesting something that might be entirely new to you and your team and then being able to encapsulate it in a really simple value proposition and make it entertaining. Like what goes into those 30 to 50 hours? I think, um, you know, you'll remember this from my presentation, but I think the, the core approach is, I think where a lot of people get kind of like stuck is they start with, what do I want to say? Mm-hmm. Right. And so they just start with that. That's the, Number one thing that you know feel, most people fill out a creative brief and they go, "This is what I want. To, this is what I want to say." And um, you know, our team backs into it with such a different approach. By instead of asking, you know, what do um, you know, what do I want to say? We start with, well, "What do they need to hear?" And to figure out what they need to hear, we we instead of thinking about our why as a company, um, you know, we start thinking about their why um i've been saying now for some time that simon cynic came up with this whole construct that's fantastic um around you know people don't buy your what they buy your why Mm -hmm. um and i shared uh there at that presentation that that it's not untrue but it's the same as believing at one point we believe that the earth was flat and then we realized it was circular and not only that we then realized later on that we revolve around the sun that the sun the sun does not revolve around the earth and so i think a lot of companies a lot of brands are still stuck at a point where they don't realize that 
you know, they revolve around the consumer. The consumer does not care about their why. Mm-hmm. Um, their meaning the, the the brand's why or the 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 SaaS products why. They care about their why. And so when we talk to a a B two B SaaS company that maybe I don't have any idea what their business does, our first question is, okay, great. What is what is their why? What's the why that your consumer has for buying this? Mm-hmm. Right. What is their why? And most people go, oh well, I don't. Know. I mean, I, 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 who, who would have that answer? I was like, probably your sales team. Like, mm-hmm. Your sales team lives this. Like intuitively, they understand. Like, at some point, they're not buying this SaaS software because of some feature mm-hmm. or because of some pricing model or anything else. Like, there's some fundamental thing that you are solving for their why, and it's usually more emotional. It's more like you know, oh, well, I have software that previously I used and it crashed and it made me look really bad or, um, man, we're, we're really outdated in the way we handle things and we know we need to step into the future. But like my biggest fear is having to train people on how to use the new software. Like their why is a fear of, of pain of training. Right. Mm-hmm. And so once you start thinking about it, that, that was the thing with, with even TechMetric, it was like, the goal of the advertising was to say, we're going to help you switch and it's going to be so easy to do that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what the features are. They already know it's going to be better than what they already have. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a re- most people haven't switched softwares because they don't want to learn a new pr- program or they're afraid of asking the rest of the company to learn a new program. So the core why that they have is like, I want this to be better. I want it to reflect well on me and I want people not to grumble they have to learn something new, right? And it's like, as you start peeling back the layers, you go, okay, well, this is how, this is the how we we answer those things instead of saying, well, you know, our software does X, Y, and Z. It's like, none of that stuff matters unless you can emotionally make people to go, oh, your company will be fine switching over and people won't be mad at you for having to learn a new program. Um, and, and I hope that that answer makes sense, but it's like, we spend all of our time figuring out, okay, you know, what are going to be these emotional doors that we can open that people are going to respond to? And it's not that we have we come up with this one that we know is going to be it. We come up with like four or five, mm-hmm. and then we approach. Great. Now that we know the doors, what's the path to those doors? And that's where we get into like, what are the features and how long does it take to implement and why did the product even get developed in the first place? And why do people love the product? Right. Um, you connect them up to those doors that you can walk through to say, is, is the door, you know, you want to save time and money is the door that you want to make sure that people have a great experience and saving time and money is, is great, but nothing else matters. If people have a bad experience or people are frustrated or mad at you as the IT person, right. Um, the list goes on. Um, that's how we're spending a majority of our time up front before we even start writing in the words. Well, wow, that's crazy. Is there any sort of framework that you use when you're, for instance, going and talking to this client sales team, um, extracting this kind of information, or is it just kind of emerge after a lot of conversation and a lot of digging? No, we yeah. use a, a very rigid framework, um, you know, because, uh, it's like you never want to leave a stone unturned. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, if if you care to visit mybrandpop.com, 
mybrandpop.com is is kind of our SaaS version of our process where um, it's literally a series of questions that get to the root of you know what are the three things that we're really trying to focus on are what are the functional benefits of the brand which most mm-hmm. people can answer right like functionally what does this solve then what are the emotional benefits which i think a lot of people can solve as well pretty easily emotionally just means like you know how does how does it make me feel to use this brand or use product or service but i think the one that's most elusive but most powerful is you know what are the self-expressive benefits mm-hmm. engaging with this product or service and meaning what am i saying about myself by buying this software or by buying this hat or by buying this computer or whatever you're buying uh, what am i saying about myself if you can reverse engineer that then people will more likely respond to your advertising because it's fulfilling in them something that they're trying to become or want to become or believe they are already um and that's where we see that magic happen um and sometimes you have to ask more than one question to get to that point though you know it's not as easy sometimes it's just picking that thin air it's like kind of like a game of uh almost like i think like a detective trying to figure out like what is this deeper thing that that people are are saying about themselves by buying whatever it is that they're buying got it so you mentioned self-expressive benefits can you walk us through the different types and different categories of benefits that you think about when it comes to you know this their why like the yeah, fun, yeah functional yeah 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 it's the functional well so just to make sure i understand your question because there's functional benefits there's emotional benefits there's self-expressive benefits um I don't know necessarily have like within self-expressive benefits more categories if that makes sense um it's usually those three and, and they map back to you know when, when simon sinek talks about people's why he says there's you know there's what you do there's how you do it and there's why you do it mm-hmm. it's the same idea it's just this, those three rings it's just like what does your product provide to mm-hmm. people functionally how does it make them feel what are they saying about themselves Got by it. interacting with your brand? Um, and one, like, so one of the questions we would ask is, you know, it's one thing to say how how does I'm gonna pick a random brand like like ClickUp for example. ClickUp mm-hmm. is a software, great. So I think a way a lot of people think is like, okay, emotionally, how do I feel when I'm using ClickUp? Okay, well, you can answer that question. But then if you want to take a step further, it's like if I'm wearing a ClickUp hat and I'm walking around in a ClickUp hat. So it's nothing to do with the actual software. Just wearing the ClickUp hat. What am I telling someone else about myself? That's that that exercise gets really interesting with people because you get to a much more like you know sizzle type of answer where it's like it's less about like oh well, I tell my you know because on an emotional level they're like oh well you know I'm someone who's innovative and I'm someone who's you know. Um, forward thinking and um, I'm organized and you know what I mean? Like they, they would answer it that way. Mm-hmm. And then you, you extend it to click up um, to like the hat and you're like, well, why would someone wear a click up hat? And it's like, well, um, because I want to be associated with the future. Like I mm-hmm. feel like I'm part of 
of using software that's building the future, like software that's that's interesting now. Like, and so then you start, oh, okay, interesting. Like, really, it's about it's about being someone who's building the future, not about necessarily someone who's organized. Mm-hmm. And those are two very different mm-hmm. reasons why someone would work something. And so then we'd be like, cool, that's a cool door. How can we convince people or mirror back to them that by using ClickUp, you are not just seeing the future, you're helping to build the future. Um, and that's where our, then we'd ask ourselves, well, what other brands are doing that well? Well, Tesla is an obvious one. Like we would just start saying, okay, well, what can we extrapolate from other brands that are already doing this well in their categories? And what can we learn to bring over to this ad campaign? Wow. And so, and that all starts with the, that brand pop framework you're talking about. Correct. Mybrandpop.com. I didn't know this existed. This is crazy. Uh, super, super cool. Um, that's fantastic that people, I'm sure you have only so much bandwidth, right? You can't take on every project, but uh, it's amazing that other people are going to be able to tap into that framework and, and apply it to their business. That's super cool. Um, yeah. I mean, do you see moving from, you know, talking about, for instance, um, uh, William Painter or, Docker Squatch or any of the other massively successful YouTube ads specifically, because we have a real uh, YouTube focused audience. Um, do you see anything change when you start to go from more of a direct response focus in terms of, you know, looking at hardcore click-based metrics to and situation where maybe attribution and the, the results aren't as like granularly. Uh, you totally. Yeah, no, I'm just curious about that process. You know, I, I think um, if I had one piece of advice to give to anyone that's in charge of marketing um, or in charge of, of uh, you know, for any sort of omnichannel marketing, the very first thing I would install on my website is something called Bestie. B-E-S-T-I-E. Mm-hmm. It is a survey platform, a post-purchase survey platform. Um, that it takes things a step further. It's really interesting the way they do it. But um, you know, people would say, Well, I heard about your brand from TikTok. And then it automatically pulls in whether it's your TikTok feed, your um, your meta feed, whatever, your influencers, it automatically pulls those top performing ad assets. People can actually select which ones they saw first wow. top of funnel. Um, and because really where, where we've seen the shift happen is in the post-purchase survey data, because mm-hmm. oftentimes, I mean, I think about all the time, it's like, great. So let's say you're running YouTube ads at velocity, you know, you're running, yeah, tens of thousands of dollars a day with the YouTube ads. Well, if they hit the website, if they watch this two and a half, three minute ad, hit the website, abandon cart, then get remarketed on Meta all of a sudden, well, Meta's going to get that conversion and it's always going to be like, you know, some bottom of the funnel mm-hmm. ad. And so it's like, you just are never able to get your hands on like, what the heck is happening top of funnel? It's like starting this sort of um, process. And um, I had a really great um, episode recently with... Uh, um, on my own podcast with uh, the guy, uh, Chris Grineau from Manscaped. And he was talking about, you know, ultimately certain ads just have a bigger 
brand impact of they're the ones that people like take note of and can recall. He's like, oftentimes, and even have things like celebrities, um, even though people will end up purchasing off of some other ad at some other point in time, you know, how do you drive performance and brand building? And I think that's really what we've been trying to do over time is like top of funnel. We want people to buy um, at a slightly higher clip, you know, on the first and the first time seeing the ad than they would like top of funnel cold traffic. But then mm-hmm. it also tees up better conversions down funnel. Uh, but if if your down funnel metrics are always going to look better. Um, and so if you're like, shoot, like no matter what, this like one offer ad always kills it for us. Well, you know, you're never going to be able to grow your business off a of bottom of funnel. You mm-hmm. always have to grow your business off the top of funnel. And so our brands that have been able to figure out YouTube have figured out what their metrics are. And I'm using YouTube as an example because it could be OGT, it could be TikTok, any of these new channels that are like less one-to-one. And frankly, mm-hmm. Meta is the same way now that iOS changed. Like as soon as mm-hmm. iOS changed, it was like, oh, all this is going to do is make every platform basically what you know what YouTube has been for the last four years, where it's like, mm-hmm. shoot, I only have like half my data. Mm-hmm. Um but yet I have hundred percent of my sales. How do I, how do I, you know, account for these? I've heard a lot of people say that they will figure out their YouTube number. A lot of people, for a lot of people, that's they'll add about 40% to what their um, true CPA is. So if they're mm-hmm. trying to hit a hundred dollar CPA, they'll allow $140 CPA. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll actually provide a little bit more leeway knowing it'll lead to things like more, like if you look at your, direct traffic if you look at your um how often people are googling your um brand um, mm-hmm. we're going to be a lift in those areas and so a lot of people a lot of our brands are using post-purchase survey data and triangulating the lift and branded search to be like oh this really works for us mm-hmm. um and so but there's never going to be like some perfect in-platform easy way to say oh yeah for sure this is like worth scaling you have to figure out what that looks like for your brand. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Do you, do you know Thomas Hopkins by any chance? Um, man, the name sounds familiar, but I'm um, not sure why. Okay, it's he was the he was the head of growth at Masterclass.com from I think when they went from twenty something million a year to like one hundred and fifty million a year, and um, it, it was interesting because. He mentioned the post-purchase survey. They're spending like a million dollars a day in some cases across every platform. And um, he was saying the post-purchase survey was kind of the the like Rosetta Stone of top of funnel traffic, really. Um, I mean, among among many others, but just like you said now, you know, it was all about triangulating the data. And that that post-purchase survey was kind of you know, is, is one of the, the best things they had to determine what was actually driving sales top of funnel. So that's super interesting. And that software sounds amazing. Actually, I've it's heard added, of people. That's, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's brand new. And um, I found out about it through Trevor Crump. Um, he's a, not only a, a fantastic marketer, he also has a little following on, um, on TikTok as well. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, just that type of technology is is really big that's amazing man jock um i know you're, you're a busy guy <laughs> so uh i want to respect your time man this has been uh this has been an awesome 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 show with you and just gotten so many insights um i guess the last question really is like who 
would you worked with so many great companies, but who would be a dream client for you and for Raindrop? Like if you could wave a magic wand and work with one one client, who would that be? You know, I should just have a predetermined answer for this. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm like, who who have I proactively reached out to recently? Um, you know, I've always felt like, uh, it, you know, I, I think we, we really enjoy, uh, like we're, you know, I, I recently added, uh, someone on LinkedIn from Airstream, um, which is oh, wow. like a more, uh, like camping type, uh, type brand. I mean, anything in that like Yeti Airstream, like, you know, camping type environment, um, even though I'm not like super huge into camping, I just think our team really enjoys thrives off of that um and i should have a better answer to this um honestly i, I one day i'd love to work with like a, a sports team um, to do something fun um I, I love the savannah bananas are bananas but uh their stuff is literally changing the game um you know i think that uh, a lot of these team sports are are ripe uh for disruption and then ClickUp has also been on my list of, um, you know, I mentioned them earlier in the podcast, but they're yeah. based out of here out of San Diego. Yeah, that's right. The product. Um, so they're on my, my like uh, dream list, if you will. I'll tell you this, you know, um, so we have all the, we track most, I pretty much probably mo- most or all of their ads on ClickUp and they have, they haven't been spending as much on YouTube as they were say a year ago. So I think that they are ripe for a conversation with you. And I think that you can open, open up the floodgates once again for them. So <laughs> I was I appreciate just looking, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, well, Jacques, so where can people find out more about you? Where, where can people reach out if they want to talk about having one of these amazing ads made, where can they go find your methodology? Just where can, where can we totally. find you? Um, Best places to reach me. I spend, you know, spend time online. So uh, a mix of either Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, and of course, our, our website, raindrop.agency for anything more like immediately work related. But, um, you know, uh, I also post quite a bit to TikTok now, too. So I'm I'm pretty much everywhere you can find on the Internet. I'm not on Pinterest, so don't try to find me there. But um, I am I'm very active on a mix of, uh, of yeah, uh, TikTok, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter as well. Amazing. Do you have a secret prank channel on TikTok that you're running in the background? Or you know, I don't, but I probably should. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe sometime when we're offline, I'll tell you about my crazy ideas. Um, <laughs> but I have a lot of them. Amazing. Awesome, Jock. Thank you so much. It's been real, real joy to have you on the show. And hopefully we can do a follow-up. Got a lot of questions remaining about just how you build your team, um, just the amazing culture that you have there. And and a lot of other stuff, but this has been been fantastic. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks. We'd be happy to. And uh, thanks for the time today. All right. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of VidTal Podcast. Again, my name is Ian Naj, co-founder of VidTal, and really appreciate you having a listen. And it means a lot. So if you have any feedback, go ahead and email us at info at Love to hear your ideas for future shows, future guests. If you want to be a guest, let us know. Love to chat. Also, just as a reminder, this show has been sponsored by Vitao, which is our free YouTube ad library, vitao.com. Again, you can go to Vitao and look up over a million ads at this point inside of Vitao. 
and uh, they're all unlisted YouTube ads. You can see what your competitors are running, track the results on a day-by-day -day basis, find new ads inside of our YouTube ad library, VidTal. And we also have a premium edition of VidTal. So the library is free to access, but for full unlimited access to the library, we have a premium, a premium edition of VidTal. And we also have training from our Incepli.com agency, which is our sister company to VidTal, where we've managed over $150 million on YouTube. We provide training on media buying, creatives, tracking, uh, copywriting, everything in between. It's all there inside of VidTal Premium. And right now we're running a very special deal on VidTal Premium. And you can go claim that right now at vidtal.com. When you sign up for free, you'll see the offer to join Premium and go there and check that out. And last thing, we also do uh, free brainstorm calls with our agency, Incepli. Go to incepli.com slash call. And we love brainstorming with you on your video advertising um, and just marketing in general. Love to chat. So incepli.com slash call, C-A-L-L. Would love to speak with you. So thanks again for joining us and looking forward to the next show. In the meantime, have a great week.